you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. church. Good morning and uh, it's good to be here this morning. I just once again welcome those who are here for the first time and I hope you'll feel welcome and you are blessed. Well, we are here this morning to celebrate the main event in human history, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. This Memorial Day is called the Good Friday, the day that the Lord Jesus was crucified on that cruel cross of Calvary. Think about it for a moment. Which was considered one of the most brutal and shameful modes of death in the first century Greco-Roman world. So you may ask, Pastor, then how can it be a Good Friday? How can we celebrate the death of Christ? So let me tell you, church, we celebrate not because of the cross, we celebrate because of the message of the cross. Because of the message of the cross. Apostle Paul tells us very clearly in uh, to his epistle to the saints in Corinth, he says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Those who are perishing is foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So he calls it the power of God, and that is why it's called Good Friday. That's why it's called Good Friday. See how this death of Christ meant to Apostle Paul. And he declares in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, look at this passage. He says, for I determined not to do what? Know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's all he wanted to know. This was Apostle's way of emphasizing the extreme importance of the cross to Christianity. The theological term that is used is atonement, which means covering. Now, the bodily sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross in order to reconcile sinful mankind to the Holy God. Church, the doctrine of the atonement is the central to all Christian theology. Atonement is the central message in the Bible, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Luther called Christianity a theology of the cross. So that is why the day Christ was crucified on the cross is called a Good Friday. But let me very briefly highlight at least six outcomes that was accomplished for mankind by Jesus' death on the cross, which explains the message of the cross and the reason why it is a Good Friday. I'm going to use some theological terms, I'll explain that. It is a good day because the first thing is expiation. Expiation means, simply means removal of our sin. Look at this passage. 
Behold the lamp of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is a good Friday because of this. He took away our sins. Secondly, there's another theological term which is called the propitiation. It refers to the removal of God's wrath. As you read this passage, it says in this, in, this is love, that not that we loved God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So that happened on this day, and that is why it's called a Good Friday. Number three, we see is reconciliation. Reconciliation refers to the removal of our alienation from God. We were alienated because of our sins. Reconciliation is removal of the alienation of God. And we see that in Romans 5.10, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through what? The death of his son. And this happened on that day. That's why it's called Good Friday. And then we see what's called the redemption. Christ accomplished deliverance from our captivity. And we see this in this passage of scripture. Paul's uh, letter to the Galatians church. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Why is it a curse? It's, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And this happened on that day. That is why it's a Good Friday. And then the next thing I want, the fifth one I want to see is the subjugation, which means the defeat of the power of darkness. We see this in this passage that, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It is the cross. This happened on that day. That's why it's a Good Friday. And lastly, it is the substitution. Church, you and I should have been on the cruel cross of Calvary. But we see that in Isaiah chapter 53, it's, but he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And verse number 6, it says, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was the substitute. And this happened on that day. And that is why it's called a Good Friday. So in summary, this is what I said. The six different outcome that we see on the Good Friday. So what do we see in this six outcome church? The message of the cross is unmistakably clear. That the Son of God was crucified to atone for the sins of mankind and secure pardon and salvation for all who would believe in him and give them eternal life. In a nutshell, that's what it is. That is the message of the cross. Now, the message of the cross helps believers both for the present time and for the future time. So this morning, if you have gathered here with some burden in your heart, if this morning you are bothered about your future, I just want you to pay attention. Because the message of the cross will bring us that comfort and the hope and the strength that we need to carry on. Let me explain the future. The message of the cross assures the believers of our eternal glory, our new life in Christ. 
There is something waiting for the believers. In the present times, in light of that eternal glory, the believers' trials and trauma of the current age will simply pale into insignificance. That's exactly what Apostle Paul said to the saints in Corinth. Look at this passage. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Knowing the end of our story, no matter what we may face today, we can sing with the songwriter, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Amen? Amen. Praise God for that. So this is the crux of the message today. The deliverance from distress. I don't know how many of you are in distress. I'm not going to ask you to slip your hands up, but you know who you are. All of us are in one form or the other. And I want to tell you, you have come to the right place. There is deliverance. There is deliverance because of that cross. So as we dive into the text today, open your Bibles, please. John chapter 14, 1 to 11. I beg your pardon, 1 to 6. 1 to 11 was assigned to me, but I couldn't go beyond 6 because, because of the timing. So in today's narrative, we see how the Lord comforts his distressed disciples through the message of the cross. So I pray that this message would bring hope and comfort to those who are sailing through the storms of life. So come with me, please. Let, let us first get the context right here. Jesus is in the upper room with the 11 disciples. Judas had just left already. The disciples were troubled by the news that one of the 12 would betray Jesus. They didn't know who it was. The Lord had also announced that he is leaving them and they cannot follow him. Imagine this church. For three years, they left their jobs, they left their families, they trusted the Lord, they were following him, and all of a sudden the Lord says, uh-uh, you stay put, I'm leaving. Now, they followed him in the hope that he was the promised Messiah, they were really elated a few days before when he rode into Jerusalem to the cheers of the crowd. They must be thinking, I'm going to be the minister of education. I'm going to be the minister of finance in this kingdom that the Lord is going to establish. But now the Lord is talking about his death, not about his messianic kingdom on earth right now. And to make it worse, Jesus had just told Peter, supposed to be the vocalist, or I would say the spokesperson of all these 12 disciples, that he would deny Jesus three times. Imagine that. So these men were anxious and they were troubled, so the Lord is comforting these troubled hearts through the message of the cross, which brings deliverance to the distressed. I'm sure, church, as I said earlier, there are many of us are facing trials of many kinds. And as David said, some of you might say, they are many and bitter. I love the way David described his trials. It's not only many, but they are bitter. We're experiencing the fear of the future or fear of the unknown or fear of death even. I want to tell you today that you will receive 
the deliverance today from all this fear. If you can pay attention to the word of God. You are going through repeated anxieties and you say, Pastor, I tried everything. I pray, I read the scriptures, I attend Bible studies, I go to the church regularly. I simply cannot overcome the anxiety, my concern and my worry. Just pause and think for the thing about these disciples for a moment, church. They had the best teacher, the best counselor, the miracle worker, the best provider, the best protector. And they were really chained to his hip for three years. But the moment Jesus said he was leaving, all fear came tumbling down on them. But the Lord is helping them overcome their anxiety with the hope we have in the message of the cross. That's why I have titled it, From Distress to Deliverance. So there are three profound instructions the Lord has given to the troubled disciples. And I just want you to take it very personally. And the Lord is giving it to you if you are troubled. He's, number one, he is telling them what we should do. In times of troubles, what we should do. That's what you see in verse number one. And then the Lord is saying why we should do them. Why? And we see that in verses 2 to 5. And the third one that we see here is that the Lord is telling them how to do it. How do you do it? That's in verse number 6. I do pray that these exhortations that the Lord is giving to the distressed disciples would become alive and active within yourself and will bring that hope and peace and will deliver you from your distress. Firstly, what should you do? Let's look at the very first verse. Chapter 14, verse 1. The passage opens with Jesus' words to them, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Wow. Troubled disciples. Confused the Lord has saying, I am leaving you. And he says, let not your heart be troubled. What a soothing statement that is. You believe in God, believe also in me. Church, as the Lord looked at these men, he knew what was going on in their minds. He knew how disturbed and upset they were. He knew what was causing it. He knew the remedy for it. Because he's an omniscient God. Nothing is unknown to him. As the Lord is looking at you, you may be hiding your fears and hiding your emotions to the person next to you, even to your spouses. But he sees it. He knows it. Because he's an omniscient God. You may be thinking that my emotions, my feelings, my anxieties, I don't have anyone in my life to share with. I want you to know he sees it this morning. He sees it this morning. For the disciples, they knew that the opposition which had developed against them in Jerusalem, the bitter hatred of the Pharisees, their determination to eliminate Jesus and all his disciples, they knew their lives were in danger. They were afraid because they too would be executed soon. After Jesus, maybe it's me. Imagine that fear. So their hearts were deeply troubled as they gathered 
here with Jesus. There's a fear of the unknown and fear of the future. And I just wanted to see how the Lord responds. He's telling them what to do. Let not your heart be troubled. Shall we read that together? Let not your heart be troubled. I don't think you are reading it. Shall we read loud, please? Let not your heart be troubled. What does that mean, church? What does it really mean? It means that the disciple could do something about their problems. That's what it means. They held in their own hands the key to their release from heart trouble. It was possible for them either to let it happen or not let it happen. Our Lord is saying the same to all of us. Do you want to come out of your anxiety and your troubles? It starts with you before it starts with God. He's saying, let not. You have to take the first step. And the first step is let not. Everybody say the word let not. It meaning do not allow your heart to be troubled. Be intentional about it. First move is by you. So what is the Lord asking us to do? Let's read on. It says, the remedy of heart trouble is contained in the second part, the second two phrases you can see. You believe in God, believe also in me. The Lord is calling you to first believe in God. Believe in God. Why? Because God who is still in control, he knows what, is, what he is doing. He is capable of exercising infinite wisdom, infinite power and infinite love. Because he's an infinite God. Then Jesus says, believe in God, but you also believe in me. Why is he saying that? Because Jesus is a means by which all that wisdom, all that resources and the power of God is made available for us. That's what we miss, church. It is only through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he said, believe in God and believe also in me. That's the secret. The greatest fear for the disciples is the fear of death naturally here. Let us face it, church. In fact, the death is everyone's greatest fear. Doesn't matter how young or how old you are. Death is everyone's greatest fear. We are troubled when we don't know what is going to happen when we die. Jesus has taken the fear out of dying. He has conquered the grave and death and there is no fear in our eternal future. 700 years before Christ was born. 700 years before Christ was born. A prophet by the name of Isaiah, he said this. He, meaning the Lord Jesus, he will swallow up death forever and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces 700 years before Christ was born, Christ would remove, swallow up death forever. And then in Revelation, we find that the Lord himself says this, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. What does that mean? What does it really mean? This is good news that the death had no hold on the Lord. 
That's what it means. And death does not have a hold on his children. You and I. Amen? Amen. Amen. Praise be to God. Because Christ conquered death, there should be no fear for the believers. Because through Christ, we also conquer death, our worst enemy. Scripture calls death the worst enemy. We are troubled when we view death as an end instead of a beginning. Look at this passage here. As Paul writes, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in heavens. So church, we don't disappear all of a sudden when we die. We only transition. We only transition. That's why the Lord says, let not your heart be troubled. So let us be clear, Jesus is not promising deliverance from earthly adversaries. As we read through, we will see that Jesus is assuring the eternal, everlasting, secured life that is yet to come for all who believe in him. And the Lord is saying, in light of all that, be comforted, be of good courage, be of good cheer. And Apostle Paul says the same thing. We see that in, the, in his epistle to the church in Corinth. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen tempor is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. That should bring us comfort. Praise God for that. In light of this, Jesus is saying, let not your heart be troubled. So the first instruction to the believers is that let not your heart be troubled. And I want to stop and tell you something here as a pastor. In my pastoral council ministry, I do my best to encourage people in the Lord. But I have seen many times people get so frustrated. Sometimes they snap at me when I say trust in God. When I say trust in God, Pastor, you don't understand. I don't need to understand. That's what the scripture says. You are not here to listen to my counsel. You are here to listen to what the Lord is telling. Let not your heart be troubled. Trust Believe in God. Believe also in me. So hear me out, church. You will never ever overcome the challenges of life when you do not believe in God. That is what we learn here, church. So now that we have seen what we should do, let us see why we should do that. The Lord is giving us. Let not your hearts be troubled, and let's move on to verses 2 and 3. And Jesus here as you read this, is encouraging these distressed disciples by sharing with them the hope found in the message of the cross. That's what you're seeing here in this passage. I believe that these promises not only reveal the secret of Christian joy, but also disclose the truth of our destiny. When you know it, and you believe it with all your heart, 
with all your mind, with all your soul, the end of your life story, church, you will certainly be comforted. You can face the adversaries in life. I've shared this with you before and I'll say it again. My, my sister-in-law, stage four cancer, and the days were numbered. I talk, we talked to her on the phone, on Skype those days. Ask her, how are you doing? I am fine. I am fine. There was a colostomy bag and, and she can't even walk, she can't talk, but she will say, I am fine. Why? Because of this. Because of this. Let's read on verse number two. Look at this passage here. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. So Jesus tells them not to be troubled, firstly, because he has prepared a mansion for you in heaven. I know all the youngsters, when they get married, first thing they look for is, where do I buy a mansion? Right? All the young people. Do I have enough dough in my bank to buy mansion? But here the Lord, you don't have to spend anything. The Lord has prepared a mansion for his children. And you know what? You might wonder, Pastor, what type of mansion is that? Do I have an attached bathroom? Do I have a jacuzzi? Is it a comfy room that I have? You know, church, the blueprint of that mansion is written in the scriptures. Don't ask me, look into the word. Come with me as I navigate through the scriptures to show you what type of mansion that the Lord has prepared for you. Look at this. Revelation 21, 4, And the God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. What do we take from this church? He has prepared a place, a mansion for you, firstly, with no more sorrow, no more crying, where the hurts and disappointments of this world have no more sting on you. Amen? Amen. Where the frustrations of life are replaced with unspeakable joys. Where the pains of life are not permitted. Where the failures of life control us no longer. That's what you're seeing here in this passage. Not only that, we are seeing there's no more pain. There are no handicapped parking there in, in heaven. There are no pharmacies and there are no prescriptions to fill. There are no crutches, there are no walkers, there are no wheelchairs. Heaven doesn't have hospitals and nursing homes and rehab centers. And the days of aches and pains for, are over now. The trips to the doctors have ceased and all the pain has ended, church. A place of no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. That's the mansion. That's the mansion. And not only that, thirdly, it's a place of great beauty. I know that, you know, when my daughter bought the house, she had a plan for the house. It was a PhD project, trust me. Matching the colors and matching this and matching that. I spent hours and hours trying to figure this out, to understand the architectural beauty or the interior decors. But there's a beauty, mansion, beautiful mansion that the Lord has given. Look at this mansion here. The construction of its wall was of jasper. 
How many of you have it in your houses? You can think about it, dream about it. And the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stone. Verse 21, the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. A bit more we find in chapter 22 and, and verse 5. Look at this. There shall be no, no night there. They need no lamp or no the light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. They shall reign forever and ever. You know, as I read this, I was thinking about in some of our homes, we have this Google. Hey, Google, turn the lights on. There are no Google these days. Google homes. None of those things we need because there is no, it's not dark at all. This church, they shall reign forever. This is our future. So when you know that this is our future home, you ask the question, I don't know about you, what are we doing here? What on earth are we doing here? With all the aches and pains, you know, I'm, I'm beginning to get all the arthritic pains. I'm very careful when I get up, because if you get up, sometimes you can't sit. When you sit, you can't get up. What are we doing here? So the first reason not to let your hearts be troubled is Jesus has prepared a mansion for every believer. The second reason we see in verse number 3, and that is, look at this passage, verse number 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, and that where I am, there you also, you be also. So he is going to personally receive you. Wow, I don't know about you guys, I get goosebumps. Imagine you are coming in, I come to this church and I see Stefan and Vianney and others, but when I go there, the Lord is going to receive me. Not these guys, no, I love them to death, trust me. I'm so glad they received me, I'm not saying no to that. But imagine walking in and there he is. Who is that? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Picture that. Bring it to the theater of your mind and understand that and absorb it. Then you'll understand the beauty and the promises that the Lord is giving us. And we see that he is talking about, and, uh, about his return and, and, and also his, his establishment of the new kingdom. That's what he's talking about here. So you ask, Pastor, how does the Lord personally receive me? I'm right here at 1640 Carmen Avenue. How is he going to receive me? A good question to ask, isn't it? For the believers, the, the, uh, God will receive you in one of two ways. Number one is when you die. As a believer, I'm talking only about the believers, not non-believers. We see that in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. So the moment you close your eyes here on this earth, you are in present with the Lord. Who is receiving you? The Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Isn't that exciting? Yes, it is. Or if you happen to survive, the Lord, when he comes, he will receive you. Look at this passage. Oh, I love this passage. I love Apostle Paul. He's a good man. All right. Now, look at this. 
in Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, uh, with, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first and hear me out. Then we who are alive, that is talking about every Tom, Dick, and Harry here, all of us. When we are alive and we are in Christ, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Read the next one with me. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? It looks like I'm the only one who is excited about that. It is great, guys. Everything. God is, we are going to be with him forever. So when we close our eyes here on earth and open on the other side of eternity, here's the exciting part. The first image we'll be seeing is our Lord Jesus Christ. He'll be there with his arms wide open to receive into that great mansion that he has prepared for all his children. I tell you one thing. Growing up with both my kids, as I come back from work, as I open the door, they both will come running to me with a big hug and a kiss. I look forward to that at the end of the day. I'm only a human. Imagine, church, when the Lord is standing there. Come, Sister Yvette, come. He won't call you Sister Yvette. He might say, hey, Yvette, come. <laughs> come, Keto, come. Wow. Isn't it exciting? Wonderful. So we will experience a love that we can't even fathom or understand. If you are longing for love here on earth, and if you are a child of God, you're going to receive a love that you will never fathom or understand. You cannot comprehend that love. It is an unconditional love that completely satisfies the longing of our souls. So in an effort to comfort the distressed disciples, the Lord first told them what to do. Then he told them why. Not let your hearts be troubled. First he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Then he said, why? Because the first reason he said was, Jesus has prepared a mansion for you. Second reason is he's going to prepare a place for you. The Lord is reminding them and reminding all of us, your life on earth is not the end of your story. It is only the beginning. There is no end. It is a transition it transitions from earth to eternity, being in the presence of the Lord. Therefore, let not your heart be troubled. Think about it, church. You, are, you go to a hospital, the doctor says, come, I need to do a surgery. Are you running and jumping and excited? Of course not. You are so fearful, you are freaking out, you say, I don't know what's going to happen, but you go, to the, go, go there to the hospital, trusting in that surgeon, isn't it? Of course, you might trust God, but you are trusting that surgeon that is going to do a good job. And you go through that so that you can come back to your house, isn't it? If you know that you are not going to come back to the house, you are not excited to be in the hospital. It's just like that. We are like being in the hospital while you are on this earth. There is a house that has been prepared where there is no pain, where there is no sickness. 
we must be eager and anxious to go to that place. Go and see anybody in the hospital. When, can I, when am I going to be released? When can I go home? Well, the Lord here told the distressed disciples what to do first. Let not your hearts be troubled. And why do you do that? Now as we read verses 4 to 6, he's telling us how to do it. How to do it. Look at this passage. And where I go, where I go you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, you know, we had to talk to this Thomas guy. Thomas talked to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, that, I am the, way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What do we take from this church? I really don't blame Thomas for asking this question. Again, the question itself tells us that Thomas or even the other disciples could not see life from eternity perspective. They don't have a clue. That's why the question, how do, they, how do I know the way? So Thomas' question is, Master, you know that we are confused. What's left for us when you leave is absolutely nothing. How can we experience the eternal glory? How do we become the recipients of these blessings? And the Lord gives a response. That's what he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, the Lord is saying this eternal glory can only be obtained through the atoning work that I'm doing. Only through me. First he says, I am the way. That's what he says here. What does it mean, church? Jesus used this word to distinguish himself as the only way. Everybody say the word, only way. The disciples are confused about where he was going and how they could follow. As Jesus had told them from the very beginning, here Jesus was again telling them, follow me. I am the way. I am the way. There is no other path to heaven, no other way to the Father. I am the way. And interestingly, later on we see that Peter, in his sermon, he reiterated this some years later. He says in Acts chapter 4, 12, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. The exclusive nature of the only path to salvation is expressed in the words, I am the way. Church, none of your efforts, your good works, your generous givings will get to eternal, will get you this eternal glory. It's Christ and Christ alone. And then he says, I am the truth. What does that mean? As you look at it again, Jesus used the phrase to emphasize himself as the only truth. Come with me as I explain this. In Psalm 119, 142, he says, your law is the truth. You get it? That's what the psalmist says. In the Sermon on the, uh, sermon on the Mount, Jesus reminded his listeners of several points of the law. Then he said, but I say unto you. Matthew 5, you know that, right? So this is the authoritative standard of righteousness. In fact, Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Jesus, as the incarnate word of God, he is the source of all truth. 
And finally he says, I am the life. What does that mean? Listen, church, it's an interesting observation. Jesus had been telling his disciples about his impending death. I'm going to die, but they said, I am the life. Imagine the confusion. Boss, you're going to die now. You say you are the, way, you are the life. No wonder Thomas asked the question. And now he was claiming to be the source of all life. And we studied that in John chapter 1, he was going to lay down his life for the sheep and then take it back again. He spoke of his authority over life and death as being granted to him by the Father. And later on we learned that because I live, you will also live. So I am the life. The deliverance he was about to provide was not a political or social deliverance. That's the problem that we have. But a true deliverance from a life of bondage to sin and death to a life of freedom in eternity. From your life of bondage of sin and death to a life of freedom in eternity. I don't know about you. Are you still entangled with sin? He can break every fetter. That's what he's saying here. And Jesus was declaring, I am the only path to heaven, the only true measure of righteousness, the only source of both physical and spiritual life. So church, as I bring this message to a, cross, to a close, if you are troubled in this world, I'm sure you are. I don't know what's worrying you today. I don't know what's, what burden that you have. I want you to first, the first thing to do, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Christ. And why do you do that? Because Christ has a bigger plan for you. He has prepared a mansion for you. He is going to receive you. In light of that, all that you face will pale into insignificance. Because this is temporal. And how do you do it? Only through the Lord Jesus Christ. Only through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know most of you who are seated there, there may be visitors, there may be people watching online. If you want to, be, want to receive that deliverance from your distress, as I mentioned here, I would encourage you, the first step, let not your heart be troubled. The first step is to believe in God. The first step is to believe in Jesus. Because as Jesus concludes, he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Church, there are two things that are certain in life in Canada. You must be wondering what it is. Number one is taxes. Nobody can run away from the tax man. Number two is death. Death. Every one of us will come a day. 
We'll be foolish if we don't know what's going to happen after that. Today is the day. Today is the day. If you want to have that assurance. These are not my words. These are directly from the Lord. I'm going to give a moment for us to just to close our eyes and bow our heads. Can we do that? And if you are struggling with some of these issues that I'm talking about, and if you think, I need to commit my life to the Lord. I need to accept Him. I need to take Him as the way, the truth, and the life. I need to be delivered from the distress. If that is you, no one is looking at you. Close your eyes. Everyone, please close your eyes for, out of respect for others. If you can, just slip your hands up. Only Pastor Dio and I will see you. We will meet with you in person. We like to pray with you. We want to encourage you. If you are struggling with anything and you really want some prayers, slip your hands up, please. God sees your hands. Time will run out. You might not find another time for repentance. It may be too late. Heavenly Father, you see every individual. You see the struggles every individual is going through. And I plead with you in the name of Jesus that you would deliver them from their distress. To encourage them to not their hearts be troubled. For them to take the first step to trust in you. And trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. To know that you have prepared the future for them. The eternal glory. In light of that master. Let them be comforted. May they be able to sail through this journey of life. With that confidence. By simply placing their trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Because you have said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the master except through me. So I commit every one of us, including myself, into your precious hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.